Well, great to see you all today. As I said, my name is Preston. I'm one of the pastors here at St. Peter's Fireside, and it's a joy to be here worshiping with you again. We were just reflecting this morning uh, about how quickly we can return to um, this being normal, and for how long it was not normal. So, um, yeah, just feeling the gratitude that we're still able here to gather together as we didn't for uh, almost a year and a half. So, uh, I'm grateful for that today. Well, today we're going to re-enter our series in the Gospel of Luke, and I'll be preaching from the passage in Luke 6, just read. And uh, as you just heard, Jesus, in this passage, he drops a couple bombshells that people didn't really know what to do with or understand uh, when he first said them, and they are potentially as revolutionary today as they would have been in first century Palestine. So let's just get right into it, why don't we? Uh, Let me set the stage. Luke has just told three stories of mounting tension between Jesus and the religious leaders in uh, preceding this. He's told us a couple things that Jesus has been doing. He's going around forgiving sins. He's going around eating and drinking with tax collectors and blowing off the fasting regimens of the Pharisees. He's going around defying Sabbath law. He's upsetting apple carts, as they used to say. (laughs) which just always reminds me of the old Aladdin Nintendo game uh, that you could bump over the apple carts. Anyone else remember that? That So, yeah, back then, so fun. (laughs) Yeah, I know. But Jesus is making people, clearly, he's making people really angry. And it's because his not-so-pious actions are more than just not-so-pious for a religious leader. They were certainly that, but they were also seen as treasonous for, for Jews. Because good Jews, at this time, stuck together. They were an oppressed minority living under Roman occupation, and they had to work together to preserve their culture by doing these things like obeying Sabbath. And beyond that, many thought that God was only going to come back and return and save them if they did a good job at following all these laws and rules, keeping their noses clean. And here's Jesus going around breaking them all, messing it up for everybody. Come on, Jesus. Uh, In chapter 6, verse 11, uh, it says this. You you hear the disdain. Um, They, the the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus after some of these happenings. Jesus isn't standing in rank. And now Luke brings us to this large open space, he describes, somewhere in the Galilean countryside where Jesus is surrounded by a crowd of people. People are coming from all over, from Tyre and Sidon and the countryside and uh, the seaside. And in the midst of all this conflict that Jesus has been having with the religious leaders, uh, this is a moment where he's, t- where he's teaching, and we see that he has been teaching throughout. He's been casting out demons. He's been healing many people as well. And on this day, everyone is bumping and jostling and trying to just get close to him, trying to actually physically touch him. Luke tells us that power came out from him and healed them all. Because something was happening where even just touching Jesus at this point, he was healing people. And amidst this crowd, we get the first major section of Jesus' teaching in Luke's gospel. The first big chunk of red letters uh, in Luke's gospel where Jesus um, adopts his key role as teacher. We know he's already been doing a lot of teaching, Uh, He began his teaching ministry uh, in the synagogue in his hometown, 
In fact, in chapter 4, you may remember, he reads from the Isaiah scroll. Let me remind you of that. Uh, it's the very beginning of his teaching ministry. Chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 16. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given him. He unrolled it and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent to me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of, of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. We can quickly jump forward and connect, think in our passage today. Jesus teaches, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So now we're seeing him preaching the good news of God that he said he was going to do back in chapter 4. Jesus directly affirms uh, this call, his call to preach and to teach, again at the end of chapter 4. Uh, in verse 42 to 44, Luke writes this. He gives us another little snippet of what's been happening. And when it was day, Jesus departed and went to a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogue of Judea. So he gives us again his purpose here. I was sent for the purpose to preach the kingdom of God. Jesus was a teacher after all. He was a rabbi and a brilliant one at that. And now we get to hear again the content of one of those sermons, finally. But before we actually get to those red letters, uh, I want just to pause and ask, ask, have you asked yourself, have all of us asked our, ask ourselves a question? Do you want to hear what this great teacher has to say? Do you want to know? Do you really want to know what he has to say and what it might mean for you and your life? Think of how you might feel if you were about to attend a class by one of the great teachers throughout history or, or uh, just a, a great person teaching you what they, what they do. Think of you if you were going to a class on painting for, taught by Michelangelo or a class on how to compose music taught by Mozart, or a class on how to shoot a three-pointer taught by Steph Curry. That was for you, Paul, wherever you are. <laughs> I know you would be excited, right? How would you feel if you were about to have a one-on-one -on -one session uh, to become great at whatever it is you aspire to be great at? Is Jesus your teacher? Do you come to him as teacher? Do you think of him in this way, too, as a great teacher? Yes, uh, he's, he's our Lord, He's our Savior, but He also teaches. So as we come to Him, do we really want to know how, He says, we, we are ought to live in this kingdom of the heavens that He's brought about? Or are we just satisfied for Him to be the Savior and leave the living to us? Well, Jesus did teach over and over, and He taught one thing over and over, one main message over and over, and He called it the kingdom of God. He says, it's coming, and here's what it's like. It's going to change everything. You could say he describes the culture of the kingdom or how things work where God reigns. 
Or another way to say it, you could say Jesus is announcing a new way of living in the world that he's inviting you and me into. Or another way to say it, this is Jesus' picture of the good life, what it means to, to succeed as a human, the way he calls us to live that fits the grain of God's movements in the world. And we'll see right off that God's values turn our expectations upside down, 100%. They always do. And we'll see that right off, Jesus wants his hearers to know one key thing. He wants us to know one key thing. And it's that the kingdom of God is available to you. It's available to you. Before we read the actual words again, uh, just a few comments, because there's a, a very similar sermon like this one in Matthew's gospel. And I don't want to get confused about uh, what he's saying here and there. Matthew, the tax collector, also wrote down uh, and recorded one of these sermons by Jesus. It's the more famous one. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Luke's material is very similar here, uh, but it's not quite the same. And it's important for us to listen to what Luke says on his own terms uh, without worrying too much about how it differs from Matthew. If you're, from, if you're familiar with Matthew's version, you'll notice some differences that come up right away. And that's not a problem because Jesus was an itinerant preacher. It means he traveled around. He walked many roads all over Galilee and uh, Judea teaching in different places at different times in different settings. And we know Jesus' character. He's always deeply attentive to the people right in front of him for the given moment and the given time. He doesn't use cliches or one-size-fits-all teachings. He's specific to each moment he's in. So it's very likely Jesus taught the Beatitudes in the form Matthew gives us and in the form Luke gives us just at different times for different particular moments and sermons for depending on the context. That's what we'd expect from any good teacher, right? They're always contextualizing. And in this moment, remember the picture. Jesus is jostled around in a crowd of people desperate to touch his cloak, hoping to get healed, desperate to get healed. Verse 20 says, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. And he said this. Before we read, will you, will you pray with me? Jesus, as we come to your words today, your very words, we ask that you will speak to us. That, we, that we, we, each of us, will have ears to listen to your words to us. Holy Spirit, come. Will you open these words Will you guide us in your truth? Will you reveal the thoughts and areas of our hearts that need revealing, that need light shed on them? Come do what only you can do, Lord Jesus. Come and speak. In your holy name we pray. Amen. And Jesus said this. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. 
Blessed. Blessed. Blessed, he says. Blessed. This word means happy or well-favored. It means from Jesus that God's delight is on you. Like what the angel Gabriel said to Mary when he came and announced the coming birth of her baby boy, Jesus. Greetings, highly favored one. You're blessed. But this raises some big questions, doesn't it? Because if this is the case, what does Jesus mean when he says this? How are these people favored? How is God's face smiling on them? Many questions arise. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are those who weep. And you who are hated because of me, says Jesus. It's obvious, isn't it? Right at the bat that Jesus' logic isn't only off from the normal way we think. He's turning things totally upside down from how human society works. Whether you're walking down the street in ancient Jerusalem or walking down Robson Street right outside here today, the poor, the hungry, those weeping and persecuted are not blessed, right? Everyone knows that. They're the least favored. They're the least fortunate people, right? Jesus presses it even further in the next couple verses, uh, which we haven't read yet, and we'll look more closely at next week, but uh, he gives several woes or laments that come right afterwards. He says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to their false prophets. Woe to you who are rich, who are full, who laugh, and who are spoken well of. Woe to you, says Jesus. Again, what? What does he mean? You know, if you're honest right now with me, you can join in saying, you know, these are four things that I spend a good deal of my time on, trying to get enough money, enough food, entertainment, the approval of people. Again, we can see why Jesus wasn't necessarily at all accepted in conservative circles of his day. This is dangerous talk that disrupts common logic, that just might change everything about how one sees the world. But again, what does he exactly mean here? We must probe this. We've got to figure out what this brilliant teacher is trying to tell us. Today, again, we'll focus on those Beatitudes, and it matters. Because if being poor and hungry and weeping is what it means to be favored by God, what does this mean? I mean, one sensible conclusion you could get to is that God must be cruel and sadistic. Why would he prefer people to be in these painful conditions? Or, if this is who God favors, does that mean that I'm supposed to try and become poor? Or to find reasons to weep? Or to go hungry? Should I go out of my way to find people to persecute me for my faith? Because that's how I somehow become favored by God? Is that the point? Or are these empty hopes given to those suffering, uh, given to those in poverty or, or hungry, meant to give them something to fixate on in the next life, maybe, to be an opiate for their current suffering? Is this Jesus being some sort of false prosperity gospel preacher? Blessed are you, poor, hungry person. You will feel the satisfaction of a full stomach on eternity's shores. Is that what it is? Some have thought so. Well, what do we do here? I think the first step is to remember who's talking. Remember who it is saying these words. Jesus of Nazareth. 
Jesus first is a Jew, living in a time and place where the Jewish nation had been conquered and is now occupied and ruled by another dominant group, the Romans. Jesus is also a poor Jew, a peasant. His father is a tradesman. When Joseph and Mary come to dedicate Jesus on the eighth day after Jesus' birth in the temple, they don't offer a lamb as Levitical law had prescribed. They opt for the caveat made for the poor, a turtle dove or two pigeons. So Jesus is a poor Jew, a member of a minority group living in a world controlled by the Romans. Jews lived under, under Rome's thumb, and they wrestled daily with the reality of the, losing their status as a nation, their freedom, their sovereignty to a ruling power that really used them as fuel for the machine of the Roman Empire, primarily through taxation. And most Jews like Jesus didn't have any citizenship. They didn't have any rights like that that came along with it. So this is the context Jesus is speaking from, a poor Jew. Think about it. Preaching, blessing to the poor and woe to the rich. This could easily have been heard as a revolutionary leader planning an armed coup, couldn't it? This is the sort of stuff that people start with. And some thought this is going to be what Jesus was going to do. The good news to the poor that he spoke of in Luke 4. Some people thought, well, this is clearly where it's going. Well, they were mistaken. Because Jesus doesn't take up arms. He doesn't counsel that against Rome. His message is political, but it's wrapped up instead in one central claim. The kingdom of God is here. And it'll turn everything upside down in its due time. The good news to the poor from Jesus, the poor Jew, turns out to be something very different. It turns out to be blessing. Again, put yourself there in the moment on that plane, on that level open space where Jesus is teaching. You try to hear his voice, see his eyes, his hands, his presence in the Galilean countryside, being bumped up against, proclaiming these blessings to the last, the least, and the lost. Notice the second person tense of these statements. It's different from Matthew. Matthew uses a more general, blessed are the poor in spirit. But here, Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor. Like Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, or his moment with a woman caught in adultery in John 8. This is an intimate moment with this crowd, focused on these people, these desperate people. I can see him looking around. This isn't scripture. I'm, I'm imagining into it, so don't be confused. He locks eyes with a neighbor from Nazareth, a wheat harvester, and he's poor, and he's looking at Jesus, desperate for hope. Jesus says to him and the other poor folk there searching for hope, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Then he spots another woman, malnourished, frail. And as Jesus always does, he discerns her longing for hope, her reprieve, her hope looking to Jesus to her and the many other hungry. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. 
Then another he spots, a man and a woman who can't hold back their tears. Jesus had heard their story. Everyone had heard their story. Their son joined a group of zealots. Fed up by the unfair treatment of the Jews from the Romans, they spoke out in protest. But Herod got word, and the Roman legion came and slaughtered the whole group. They were weeping for the loss of their son and the systems of injustice they lived under. Jesus locks eyes with them. Blessed are you who weep now, today, for you shall laugh again. There's hope for you, and you, and you, says Jesus. The down and out, the suffering, the oppressed, because Jesus sees them, because they are with him there, because they're longing for his presence, because they're longing and looking for hope in him. See, Jesus isn't holding these conditions up as markers for holiness. He's not saying you should go and try to be hungry. He's not saying that on their own, these conditions guarantee somehow God's blessing. Because there are people in the world who are poor and hungry and filled with grief that are ungodly and sinful and lost. That's true. And there are also people who are persecuted in Jesus' name. And they give up and deny him and never look back. That happens. And on the flip side, right, there are people who are not poor and not hungry, don't experience hunger, and don't experience persecution, but who do live in God's blessing and who experience the joy of salvation and are living humble lives following Jesus. Some of you, I know you. These are true. We have to recognize these things hearing Jesus' teaching. So again, what's he saying? What's it all about? He's saying to the people who no one else would call blessed. He's picking out the ex like examples of people in his crowd who no one else would call blessed and saying, guess what? The kingdom of God is available to you, even you. And you're blessed because you're right here in my presence, because I see you and you see me, because you're looking for hope in the right place. Dallas Willard, whose interpretation I'm leaning on today, puts it this way. He says, by proclaiming blessed those who in the human order are thought hopeless, and by pronouncing woes over those human beings regarded as well off, Jesus opens the kingdom of the heavens to everyone. This is Jesus' point. It's open to everyone. So think now. Who would you consider to be the most unfortunate people around you? Who would you think of as the most unfortunate people? Is it the ugly or the fat or the clueless people that you just kind of want to roll your eyes at? Is it the unemployable or the disabled or the homeless? Is it the prostitute or the pornographer or the pimp? Is it the addict? the wounded, the mentally ill? Who is it that you would say the least or the most unfortunate? Or maybe, as you sit in your seat today and think about that question, you think, it's me. 
I am. If anyone can say they're not blessed today, it's me. Well, Jesus, the one who knew what it meant to be on the outside, the one who lived on the outside his whole life, says, child, in my presence, blessed are you. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you. Blessed are you who are trapped in addiction, for you shall be set free. Blessed are you whose mind is clouded day after day with depression. You will be healed. Blessed are you, the one who has no friends. I have a warm embrace for you. Blessed, blessed, blessed are you, the least of these, as you run to me. In your world, in your world, you may, be, you may think you're made to believe that you are the, the, the lost, the last, the least. Sometimes you may even feel that way when you come to church. But Jesus says, yes, yep, they said that about me too. I felt that too in church. He came to his own and his own did not receive him, wrote John. But in the kingdom of the heavens, Jesus says, in the kingdom of the heavens, I offer hope that is solid and sure, life that sustains you even beyond death, and a citizenship that can never be taken from you no matter what, a citizenship that cannot be stolen or downtrodden on. As I paint this picture today, I want to acknowledge that many people hear this, hear, hear this message, hear these words and say, okay, that sounds nice, but how does it really make a difference? Are we not just again falling back into this pseudo-prosperity gospelish deal, pie-in-the-sky thinking, where it's just about getting through this life for the reward at the end? Well, two responses to that. One, this is where Jesus' ethics that he will lay out in the rest of the sermon, come into play. He begins to teach things on, like, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you, expecting nothing in return. He goes on to teach things like, forgive freely as many times as you are harmed and don't keep track. We start to learn that when the kingdom is alive in us, when this way of living is flowing through us, the world around us begins to change. And our obedience, our obedience to Jesus in these ways is the very abundance that he promises. These aren't two separate things, but by walking in obedience, we begin to experience the abundance, the life of the kingdom. That's how Willard puts it. The obedience is and becomes the abundance. But two, there's another thing too. Jesus certainly did not think that he was giving a future promise that had no meaning or no relevance to today. Nor did his followers. I mean, many of them gave their lives and died for the real experience of the kingdom that they had in their life. Many of the other followers of Jesus also throughout history have come to the same conclusion. It's real. It's real, and it's worth sacrificing immense amounts for, even dying for in a lot of ages and times. One more recent example is a, a man named Howard Thurman. You may know him. 
He wrote a book called Jesus and the Disinherited. And in this book, he asks a question. How do Jesus' teachings bear real help to those in need and oppressed of all times and places? How does it really make a difference? That's his question. What he calls the disinherited, or as he says over and over, the people who live with their backs against the wall their whole life. He's writing in the mid-20th century, the 40s and 50s in the United States with the African-American community mainly in his mind. Who said uh, Martin Luther King always had a copy of this book in his back pocket in his travels. But Thurman comes to this conclusion. I'm going to quote him a bit at length. He's talking about Jesus. He says, living in a climate of deep insecurity, Jesus faced with so narrow a margin of his own civil guarantees had to find some other basis upon which to establish a sense of well-being. He knew that the goals of religion, as he understood them, could never be worked out within the then-established order. Deep from within that order, he projected a dream, the logic of which would give to all the needful security. There would be room for all, and no man would be a threat to his brother. The kingdom of God is within. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach good news to the poor. These basic principles of his way of life cut straight through to the despair of his fellows and found it groundless. By inference, he says, you must abandon your fear of each other, of people, and fear only God. You must not indulge any deception and dishonesty, even to save your lives. Your words must be yea, nay, anything else is evil. Hatred is destructive to the hated and hater alike. Love your enemy, that you may be children of your Father who is in heaven. Thurman went on to teach that the blessing of Jesus to the poor and the disinherited is not only good news, but it's the best news, that, that actually the best news that they could receive. He saw that, th that when this blessing when this favor, when this love is etched on a human soul, then nothing can take it away. Nothing can take it away. And that really matters when so many other things can be taken away. Rights and citizenship and all the rest. But nothing can take this away. The blessing of Jesus, this blessing, this favor then to the poor and the hungry and those who weep, those persecuted for Jesus' sake, to any and all, really, who find themselves meeting his gaze with hope is just this. Yours is the kingdom. You belong to me, and I belong to you. And no poverty, no suffering, and no rejection can change that. No disability can change that. No deformity, no humiliation can change that. No job loss, no bankruptcy, no mental illness can change that. No failure. No crime against humanity. No faithlessness can change that. No injustice. No, no abuse. No grief can change that. You belong to me. And I belong to you. Blessed. Blessed. Blessed are you when you're weary and you're a failure. You prone people prone to failing, you broken people, blessed, because in my presence you have a home. Let's pray.